Well, you have Matthew 28 in front of you, don't you? I'll be looking at verses 16 through 20. This is Matthew's um, version, we'll call it, of Christ's final words. And final words are important, aren't they? They're designed to be memorable and actionable. I remember my father's final words to me as a single man. We were in the side room of a church in Michigan, just about to walk to the front and stand at the front of the middle aisle where Julie would come and we would say our vows and we'd get married. Just before walking out there and he leaned over and he said, son, remember, it's all about commitment. And then we opened the door and I got married. Those were his last words to me as a single man. And they were memorable and they were actionable. He was saying to me, in marriage, this is what it takes. This is your posture. I remember those. And that's what final words do for us. They're, they're, they're what we know someone thinks is important. They're memorable. They're actionable. And Christ's last words really are no different. They're memorable and actionable. In fact, I would just remind you of this as well, that his last words are not just in Matthew 28. They're also in Mark and Luke and John and Acts. In fact, Luke mentions them twice, and so does John. Over half of the Gospel of John is contained within the last week of Christ's life. So there were multiple times he gave them some last words. Here's Matthew's rendering of them. And these words are true for individuals, families, churches. What we have in these verses is really the, the wall against where to lean the ladder of our life. So here are these words. Let's read them together. Please, church, can I just encourage you not to let the familiarity we have with these verses reduce their impact? This is the tendency in church when we hear that, oh, we're going to be preaching on a text that we know. And we visit this passage a lot. And sometimes we think, oh, well, I know where this is headed. And we kind of mentally, even spiritually tune out. Can I ask you to keep your uh, radar tuned in well this morning. In fact, I love these verses. I read them often. I've preached on them often. Uh, but there's a reason they take center stage in our church because we're hearing the heart of God for the church, what we're to be all about. I recall one time preaching on this passage and uh, I, I, I was just uh, um, going through it, uh, it probably too detailed for the moment and I had seven or eight things to say and so I got done and uh, missionary was in the audience and he said man thank you I've got seven sermons now out of your one <laughs> we laughed so we're going to get a lot out of this I just want to encourage you the scriptures are rich aren't they and we never grow tired of them I mean many of you eat more than once a day right and often you eat the same thing so let's dig into this beautiful buffet this morning it may be the same as you heard last year last month 10 years ago but it's still God's word still rich let's not let its familiarity reduce its impact. Here are the last words of Christ. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. These are the last words of Christ. What happens next is His ascension. What do we learn from these last words? Well, fundamentally, we learn this, that we are a sent people, and we need to know what it means to live in a sent fashion. Why do I say that? Because before I dive into three mindsets that are um, required of sent people, I want you to understand something. The, the word go, therefore, it's the assumed posture for everyone. In fact, I would say to you, the idea of going isn't really the command. It's the assumption. Some go far away, some don't go far away, but all of us every day are going somewhere. The church said, amen. You're going to work, you're going to your neighbors, maybe you're going across the ocean, you're going to your basement. You're going somewhere is my point. So I want you to hear this, that we are considered a sent people automatically. No one gets to opt out of that. What did Jesus say in John 20? As the Father has sent me, so, say it, church, send I you. There's no exception to being sent. The question is, where are you sent? And so knowing that, that we are a sent people, that we are to live as a sent people, it's the assumed posture. What are three mindsets that this passage lays out for us, especially of sent people? Here's the first one. That living scent begins with the posture of worshiping King Jesus. Notice that before the commandment is ever given, there is this act of worship happening. Do you see that in verse 17? When they saw him, they worshiped him. And I love the honesty of Matthew. He does admit that some doubted. And before you're too hard on them, can we just be honest about something? Uh, just weeks prior to this, they were sure he had died and were going back to fishing. Then he arose from the dead, um, and I use this phrase correctly, surprised them. It wasn't a surprise to him or God, but I think they finally realized all he'd been telling us is true. He's here, back from the dead, but Thomas still wasn't there. It took a face-to-face -face meeting and a chance to put his fingers and hand into the scars and the, and the wounds. I mean, a lot has happened. They've been on a roller coaster ride, an incredible range of emotions. So when you read this, don't think, man, what's wrong with those guys? You'd have done the same thing. They were looking at the resurrected Christ. And so they did worship and there was this mixed emotion. But this is what comes first. It's this sense that we're looking and speaking and interacting now with the one who has all authority. This is King Jesus. He's overcome death. So whatever he says, I'm in. You see, here, here's the realization, church. We do give voice to what we value. That's what the text is showing us. That the reason they were going to give voice and obedience to all that Christ said it's because they valued Christ. That's why their first posture was one of worship. Worship always precedes work. And this is what's occurring here. You see, church, I don't think, and this is just very pastorally transparent with you, I don't think our real issue when it comes to sharing the gospel, making disciples... Whatever word or phrase you want to use, I don't think our real issue is skill or technique. 
I personally don't think it's fear. I know that at times we say that. I think I know your heart and my heart that maybe we're just not sure what to say. But the truth is, if you love and worship Jesus, you'll figure it out. If that seems too plain, sorry. You give voice to what you value every single time. You see, the real issue is most of us, too many of us, don't value Jesus enough. I didn't say you don't value him, but I think for many people, he's on the list of things they value. But I want to warn you of something. Jesus Christ cannot be contained to a list. See, I'm not a big fan of the idea of like, well, he's my number one priority. Jesus Christ doesn't want to be first on your list. He wants to consume every bit of your list. So when your job's important and you have to work, he wants to be first and foremost in your job. Like you're just going to use your job to make sure Christ's name is known. If it's going with your family one weekend, if it's going hunting, if it's coaching a team, you see, we don't prioritize like this, like, okay, God, you got your 10 minutes. Now the rest of the day is mine. That's, that's faulty thinking. Jesus Christ gets every minute of every day and whatever we're doing, he's in the middle of it. He's, he's in the middle of raising our kids, fixing dinner for our spouse, with our spouse, working our jobs, hiring employees, firing employees, building companies, doing medical work, handling the assembly line of the factory, doing banking exchanges. Name your process or your situation. Jesus Christ wants to be right in the middle of that because he wants to consume every bit of your life and list. That's when you know you value something. That's when you know you value someone. When that's all you think about, no matter what you're doing. Some of you have marriages this way. Isn't it a beautiful relationship when your spouse is just always on your mind? It's what you think about. You, you never don't think about her or him. Why? Because you value them. They just incorporate and infiltrate every part of your life. You're quick to talk about them. It's not like someone has to teach you how to talk about the spouse that you love. Like, here's three steps to help you talk about your spouse. You don't need to learn a skill. You're not praying like, Lord, get me, get me over the fear of talking about. And so I'm just being pastorally transparent and plain with you. I think our fundamental problem isn't a lack of skill or technique or fear. It's that we don't value Jesus enough He's just one of many things that we think are pretty important. But in this text, he was the only thing that was important. And right there on this mountain, they saw him, and their first response was one of worshiping King Jesus. That's the posture of sent people. Here's an action point for you to write down. Remember this, intimacy before ministry. It could very well be that many of you are frustrated in your efforts of sharing the gospel, of living an on-mission life, of being a witness. And the reason you're frustrated that you, that you find the work difficult is because you've not really prioritized worship. You're involved in ministry, but you have no intimacy. And the proper order is always intimacy first, then ministry. It's worship then work. It's not what you can do for God. It's what God will do in you and through you. 
And when that begins to happen, then all ministry flows from that. So church, as we live a sent life, that's the assumed posture, let's make this our first aim, the worship of King Jesus. I was talking to a pastor earlier this week. His church had been making some adjustments and changes and a number of things because of the way God was just using them. And so they were having to tweak some things and it wasn't settling well with everyone. And so he was sharing with me, he said, I, I've been trying to work this with our people and, and explain this and that. And he said some of our, um, in his situation, some of his more rural people, some of the older people, were just not really on board. And they liked him, they liked the church, but they're like, man, do we have to really make these changes? And so he said one Sunday they were baptizing. One of those members approached him and put his arm around the pastor. And he said, Pastor, you know, I'm struggling with some of these changes. But if that keeps happening, I'm all in. Isn't that a sweet attitude? He saw people getting baptized, coming from not worshiping Jesus to worshiping Jesus. He saw people being transformed, going from darkness to light, from enemy to family, from orphan to adopted. And he said, okay, I'm having to adjust maybe the way I did it 40 years ago. But if this is happening, if people are, are being saved and worshiping Jesus, I'm in. This is the posture of people who are sent. It's to worship Jesus. Number two, notice with me verses 18 through 20, that living sent means we embrace a process of making disciples. Now, it's important that we take some time to understand this phrase that we are to make disciples because often we just end it there. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but we, all know, we need to understand two things about this, that there are modifiers to making disciples that lead us to a meaning of making disciples. So will you hang with me? Both in your heart and your head, listen very carefully. Notice the modifiers of this command to make disciples. This is the command in the text. It's modified, first of all, by this idea that we're to make disciples of all nations. So understand, church, there's no ethnic distinction in the reach of the gospel. It's not based on color. It's not based on language. All people should hear the gospel everywhere. We're to make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. He also mentions that this process or this, this task, this mandate, this command to make disciples of all nations includes, what's this? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So there's a baptizing component and a teaching component. But inherent in the teaching component, watch this, is an obeying component. Because the Bible does not say we're to teach them everything Jesus commanded. It doesn't say that. I was talking with a pastor, another pastor this week. And in his notes, he was preaching through the same text, in fact. He wrote that. He said, remember, church, our task is to baptize and teach them everything Jesus said. I called him. I said, that's actually not what the text says. He said, it's not. I said, no, the text says we're to teach them to obey everything Jesus said. And it's that unintentional misreading of the text that has caused the American church too often to become driven for knowledge and puffed up. And we have this static sense that, you know what? We can be a disciple because we know a lot, but we're not doing anything. The last words of Jesus are to, yes, 
make disciples, which has this sense of like reproduction. You can use the word recruiting, however you want to phrase it. It's like bringing people who aren't disciples into the process of being a disciple. And that is indicated by someone being baptized. Now watch this. And then learning how to live their life and do what Jesus said, which helps us understand the meaning of making disciples. When someone comes to faith, they're baptized and they begin to learn what they should do to obey Jesus. Guess what they will eventually do? They will make disciples. In fact, I would say, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating. If there's not reproduction, there really isn't the making of disciples. There may be a good Bible study going on. You and one person can be at Starbucks for 10 years studying Exodus. That's fantastic. But that's not disciple making if it's just you two for 10 years. Disciple making inherently includes reproduction. And some of you think I'm knocking on 10 year Bible studies. I'm not. I'm just trying to use the best kind of language to make sure we get to the heart of Christ's last words. So he's saying, yes, make disciples uh, with no regard to ethnicity. The gospel should go everywhere. And while that's happening, then we are baptizing those who say, I'm in, and we're teaching them to obey, which means then they will ultimately make disciples who say, I'm in, they'll get baptized and they'll begin to obey. And in their obedience, they'll make disciples who, so that's why we often say, we wanna make disciples who make disciples who make disciples ad infinitum, right? So this process here is laid out for us and as we understand the modifiers to it and the meaning of it, we understand clearly that what's, what's being discussed here is this idea of multiplication. I like the way Pastor Carlos years ago defined it. I like this definition. I've used it in a book I've written. I'll use it today. It's spiritual reproduction without ethnic distinction. That's just a really good, succinct definition of what it means to make disciples. It's spiritual reproduction without ethnic distinction. The gospel is for all. And when those believe it and are baptized and begin to obey it, they begin to feel the weight in the command of Christ's last words, and they then in turn live the very same way. So the meaning of this really is a multiplication mindset. Here's an action point for you. to Jot this down, would you? Pursue process, not product. You see, often we think about, I just want to find one person, and we've done the Who's Your One campaign. I think that's healthy, it's good. But we can often think, I'm going to find one person, I'm going to win them to Christ, and then I'm done. Kind of have like this addition mindset. But, but God really is into multiplication. So I think it's good and healthy to pray for one, but that as you pray and work with that one, and they come to Christ, and you teach them to obey, guess what they should do? Who in my circle of influence needs to hear about Christ and come to faith? Who needs the gospel in my spheres of relationship? And that's how the gospel spreads. That's God's method of adding to the church daily those who were being saved. That's Acts chapter 2. So I'm good with God's addition, not really great with man's addition, okay? Because I think God's addition is really similar just to multiplication. He's adding people who then are his workers and they continue to reach out. It's a process, not a product. Now, let me walk you through the process at first Sunday for a moment. I'll take some time here to kind of show you something that we review not often enough, but today's a good day to review it. 
In the beginning part of our church, we established that there were three arenas that we would operate in. Or we could say this, three streams that we swim in. These are three places where this process takes place. All right? There's First Family Church, which is the central core, the primary one. It feeds the others. It needs to do well. Then there's First Family Extended, which is really a, a primary reference to our church planting efforts. It may include other things, but primarily that's what it's aimed at. We'd call that our planting emphasis. And then there's First Family Global, which is our partner emphasis. And so there's three streams, FFC, FFE, and FFG. Each of those has short-term objectives. We have kind of definitions for those. I'm just here to kind of let you see, generally speaking, especially if you're new the last several months or last year, this is really uh, an overall structure that's in place here as we think about the process of making disciples of all nations who are baptized and taught to obey so that they in turn make disciples who are baptized and taught to obey. It happens in three arenas. We do it with people locally. We do it through planting. We call it nationally, could be internationally. And we do it um, through partners globally. Now, when it comes to First Family Church, the, the process is known as the discipleship pathway. There will be a few, I think in a few weeks, maybe a few months, you'll see a big graphic out here in our church. You've seen it on a card, you've seen it on our website, but it's kind of the pathway, the process that we encourage folks to make sure they're on a regular basis. There's five steps to it. Belong, connect, grow, serve, and lead. I won't go into all the detail about that. There's just a five kind of steps to take in the discipleship pathway. But you see, we've really misnamed that. It's not really a discipleship pathway. I think of it as a discipleship raceway, not because of the pace, but because it's not something you finish and then say, I'm done. See, that's thinking product. When you think process, then you walk the pathway, or as I say, the raceway, and then as you begin to lead, you realize leadership is really all about multiplication. It's reproducing yourself in someone else. Maybe it's a small group, an elder, a deacon. Maybe it's on a ministry team. You're serving, you're leading. So you just say, you know what? I'm going to go back around the discipleship raceway with somebody by my side. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your friend. And so you start again, just walking them through what it means to belong, connect, grow, serve, lead. And then when they get to that place, you're like, hey, who do you know? that you could walk around the discipleship raceway with. You see, in this way, we're never really finished, are we? we don't, we're not trying to produce a product. Hey, look at all these great leaders. We're all standing at the end of the pathway like, thank you very much. No, we're on this, in this process of making disciples who, say it with me, church, make disciples who make disciples. And so we're really on a discipleship, and there's a better word than raceway. Some of you think of it, let me know about it, it'd be great. But I'm good with just, you know, it's a, it's a continuous loop that we're always on as a church. This is God's heart. The making of disciples on a regular basis by those who are disciples. Multiplication, spiritual reproduction. And I've been so humbled by the way God has in his grace and mercy and love just favored our church. In spite of our lack of skill and lack of knowledge, in spite of so many things where sometimes just don't hit a straight bullseye, hit a home run, God says, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna empower you for reproduction, for multiplication. And man, I, I, I just can't express to you enough how deeply my heart is just all in 
to God's passion for all peoples and seeing disciples made who will make disciples who will make disciples so that the gospel gets where it's never been. That's why we embrace the process of making disciples, not the product. Number three, notice the end of verse 20. Notice this mindset true of sent people. Not only do they embrace the posture of worshiping King Jesus first and the process of making disciples, which means baptizing and teaching them to obey so that there's reproduction, but sent people rest on the promise of Christ's forever presence. Can I show you something in the verse that just makes me laugh? I love this part. It's the word um, in verse 20 towards the end where he says, behold. Like that's an interesting word to use at the end of a command. But here's why I think Jesus does that. In, in some translations, it's the word lo. Like, and lo, I am with you. Or, and behold, I am with you. It's like, there seems to be this emphasis in an odd place to be like, the emphasis should be at the beginning. Like, hey, I've got a command for you. I've got an exhortation all ears, please, but it's like he gives the command and then suddenly, and behold, it's like, oh. Here's why I think he did that, because the command is quite audacious, wouldn't you say? I mean, think about it. Here's 12 guys who are worshiping with a mixture of doubt. They've been on a roller coaster of emotions, and now they're told to go and do the very same thing to all nations that Jesus did to them in three years. Oh, by the way, I'm taking off in just a few days, so uh, go for it. Right? I mean, it's like, we got to do what? It's on the heels of the audacity of this command that Jesus says, and behold, I'm with you. It's like, okay. I, I feel like it's his way of just kind of letting the air out of the bag, just kind of releasing the tension. It, it almost in some way, if I can say it this way to you uh, properly, uh, his presence kind of releases the audacity of the task. And they begin to think, okay, we can get this done because he will be with us. And I begin to realize presence means everything. Think about when you were a kid. Your parents gave you a tall order. Your eyes got big. You don't just say, yours in your heart, you're thinking, you mean I've got to do what? And then they say, don't worry, I'll, I'll go with you. What's your first thought? You're like, okay, good. They're still going to require you to do the work, but just knowing that your dad or your mom is there, it's, it's like, okay, I can do this. I think that's what's happening here. And I love the way Christ says, and behold, like, watch this. Don't miss it. The audacity of this task. It, it's it's going to settle on you, okay, because I will be with you till the end of the age. I love the fact that Christ's presence prepares us for the mission. Now, by the way, this was played out in Acts 1 and Acts 2. When he did ascend, but then he sent the Holy Spirit to be with them and to be in them. 
It's on the heels of the Holy Spirit being sent that they then were empowered to be witnesses. So do not underestimate the power of presence. It's vital to our mission. If we don't have the Holy Spirit in us, which is the presence of Christ, we won't be witnesses. So understand this, church. Here's an action point for you. Rely on withness to witness. Yes, I made up the word witness, but it's quite theological. Because often we rely just on ourselves to witness, don't we? And again, we kind of think there's a skill, there's a technique, there's a formula. I've got to learn that. We think we can overcome our fear in a man-made way. We can manufacture some kind of courage. I think that's short-lived. Here's what's long-term when it comes to making disciples. Here's how to live as a sent person long-term. Realize that Christ is with you. And his witness will do more for your witness than anything in the world. You need proof? When Jesus Christ reminded his disciples, this is Luke 12, I believe, when he reminded them that there would be times ahead in which they'd be brought before magistrates and they'd be brought before the rulers and they'd be persecuted and put on trial. He says, in that moment, don't worry about what you're going to say. I would do the opposite. I'd be like, I'm really worried right now what to say. He said, when those things occur, don't worry about what to say for I will tell you. Well, how's that gonna happen? The Holy Spirit will be with you. I mean, do you. Do you see the emphasis on his presence in the face of what they were going to experience while they were on mission? So church, I wanna remind us, the withness of Christ is essential to the witness of the church. Now, let me just make this essentially and practically plain for a few minutes. Because this principle holds true not only for those first disciples, as they encountered much steeper adjustments and changes in their mission than we've ever experienced so far. Who knows what the days ahead may hold, but so far, at least in my short life, I've not experienced anything near what those first disciples experienced. But I have the same presence of Christ they did, amen? The Holy Spirit, so we need not fear what's ahead, we need to march forward with courage and Christ's presence and power into his mission. So as we think about that as a church, we need to understand that Christ will be with us in every one of the adjustments or changes that we need to make in order to stay on mission for Christ, every one of them. Regardless of their size, we need not fear or panic. I tell you that because we do have some adjustments to make over the next several months. Let me walk you through those just briefly. Here's why. Since January of this year, our church has experienced the God-given blessing of an additional 225 people. That's on average. First four weeks of January, we were running, uh, I think, 548-ish, 550-ish. The last four weeks, we're right about 775 to 800. If you come at 930, you can feel that pinch. You feel the pinch when you go to leave and you find, man, there's not a single parking place out here because all the 930 folks are coming in. You're trying to leave. They're circling, trying to get your spot. We see this at 11 o'clock because the 930 folks didn't leave and the 11 o'clockers have not had a place to park. And so the 11 o'clock starts with about 
No, 12 people. <laughs> By about 1120, there's 150 in here. You know what they're doing? They've been out looking for a place to park. I've kind of berated them for being late. They're like, you don't know, Todd, what it's like out there. I don't, you're right. I'm here at six, I don't leave, okay? The last few weeks, we've done some uh, drone footage of our parking lot. We've looked at the capacity of our seating at 930. Um, We've analyzed square footage, stage usage. And it's our desire to make sure that we just stay in step with what God is doing. It's not because we're anything great. There's no experts on this in this church. It's not because of our skill. We don't have some secret sauce. I get I say it's just God's favor. And there's a pervasive joy in our church that I just am enjoying being under right now. I was talking to some folks this morning even that they're bringing their neighbors and and their neighbors like, yeah, we've heard about it. We just want to be there and see what's going on. Like, can we just live under God's favor for a bit and not take any credit So this is not because we're doing something great. It's just responding to a wave of the Lord. We're planting next April. That'll relieve us of some people. I'm hoping 100 will go. Right now they're at about 30 or 40. Praise God for that. That'll free up some space. But my sense is they're just gonna continue to come. We wanna make room for that. We're not after numbers, but we're sure not gonna turn anybody away because the gospel is spiritual reproduction without ethnic distinction. So we're going to do three things over the next several months. You're going to see this happening. It'll require some changes on you, some adjustments, but don't panic or fear. We can get through this. It's easy. We're going to increase some seating capacity, cut the stage back. We're going to exchange the chairs. We're going to be replacing many of them, adding some. We're also be going to uh, improve our parking situation, which means we're going to add some spaces, hopefully. We're not sure where exactly. We have very limited land left. In order to keep some green space, this is by code, we don't have a ton of options. So just be aware of that. I know that when you see it happen, you may have a thousand suggestions. Please give them, just be humble if you hear a response that, hey, we tried that or we looked into that. We've gotta add some spaces. We don't have a ton of options. What we wanna mainly do is utilize more offsite parking. So many of you will be asked to park offsite. We need dads and husbands to drop their families off and then go park either the Old Anki Sanitation, D&J Plating. We've, Got permission to use all the parking at the plaza on the east, which is just 20 to 30 on the front side, but we can use the back. There's like 50 more. There's street parking. Maybe some of you can double up, uh, like families instead of three people driving three cars. Maybe three people could just drive two, even one if you're really spiritual, okay? I mean, (laughs) we've got to work together to figure this out. Again, this is not a long-term solution. It's just a longer-term solution. So I'm asking you to, to help us as you get some emails soon about parking uh, to work with us. It won't be the most convenient and it's in the dead of winter, which is the worst time to do it. But I don't think we have an option, okay? We've already seen at multiple weeks folks circling the lot three or four times and then driving off. And so can I just say to you as a pastor, that, that's not pleasing. I'm not looking for numbers. I just wonder who's in that car that might need help. And God's not limited by us. He can reach them. I'm totally in on sovereignty. I'm with you. But I also know that God's means, his ordained means of reaching people includes using people. I want to be sensitive to our community, don't you? I want to be aware of people who are searching and and wondering and have questions. And so we're also going to improve our parking team. So at some point early next year, you'll be actually directed where to park. Please don't cuss at the parking attendants, okay? Don't say, I always park in the front. If you see someone in a vest kind of ushering you to the rear so that the visible spots can be seen at the last minute by those who are coming in as guests, 
Just be willing to say, yeah, I'll park down there by the pond, no problem. Okay, are you hearing my heart? I mean, can we work together? And, and, and this is a small thing. I could talk about Afghanistan, <laughs> Central Asia, North Korea, and the things they're doing there to see this gospel spread. It's way bigger than what we're asking of you. So can we just realize these are small modifications. They are adjustments, they're changes, but I've known with some American Christians that the least little change gets them kind of all upset. I'm saying to you from a theological point of view, if you have to park across the street or down the way, Christ will be with you when you walk to the church, all right? <laughs> You'll be okay. If it seems more crowded, if you have to give up your seat, if you gotta sit in the middle, if we're adding chairs, you'll be fine. Join me and our leadership in saying, let's adjust and change for the mission of God. Doesn't mean we're gonna stop planting or sending. We'll do all that to free up some space. But my sense tells me we've planted six times and we're full again. So can we just live under God's favor and say, Lord, thanks for making disciples here. We're all in and we'll stay all in. The last thing we'll do is we're gonna extend our transition time because really our pinch point isn't a seating issue. It's a parking issue with very little transition time. About 20 minutes. You'll have less this morning, by the way. <laughs> That's a problem. And so we're probably gonna go back to two larger services at some point early next year. I think it's a really good move. It took me a while to get there. I was the last on board, but I thank God for our elders and leaders who are like, Todd, it's best for the church. And they're exactly right. I don't run the church. I'm not a dictator. I'm on part of a team. The truth is we're fueling the right factors by extending and lengthening our transition time so you can have more time to fellowship. You'll be able to see more people between two services as opposed to three. I'm not opposed to three later. So this is just, like I said, a longer term solution, not a permanent solution. But it's going to be some time changes. And maybe your family is kind of already used to the 8, 9, 30, 11 rhythm. I got news for you. You can develop a new rhythm. It's not impossible. <laughs> Don't complain. Relax. We're not even sure what times yet. But our goal is to relieve the pinch points of parking and transition time. Why do that? Because the mission of God matters, even in little things like that. So I'm asking you. As we continue to develop some shorter term, I should say some longer term solutions, yet more details will come. Um, but by God's grace, let's just continue to live in this pervasive joy that we're sensing, responding to what God is doing, this soul-filling favor from God that he's pouring out on us as we make his mission paramount, which is to make disciples who make disciples. In my opinion, that's where the pervasive joy is coming from. It's from its, at this an unashamed posture to be distinctly Christian in our community and a willingness to send those who say, we'll go wherever. So we've commissioned uh, one of our young ladies to Youth with a Mission a few months ago, Vanessa, just last week. You met John, of course, this morning from our commissioning a few years ago. I've got multiple couples that I'm speaking with in the pipeline, as well as multiple people who are thinking about maybe planting I want the temperature here to be, where can we multiply next? I think that's why we're in this season of just pervasive joy and soul-filling favor because our hearts are beating more like God's heart. We're not trying to protect an image. We're not trying to build a brand. We're not trying to 
get numbers. We're just trying to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We're gonna have loose hands in that process. I think God smiles on that. And he pours out his grace and mercy and blessing to people who don't really have a clue what to do next sometimes. But if God tells us, we'll do it. That's the kind of church I'm enjoying pastoring with our elders. And I hope you're enjoying being part of that. So yes, we'll keep planting, we'll keep sending, we'll keep giving, you keep giving, you keep praying with us. My sense is that as we make God's passion our mission, then that level of distinction and clarity will only serve as a genuine attraction and magnet to many in our own community. Many who are looking for the water that quenches their deepest thirst. And I assure you, God will be with us in every step. He'll be guiding us with his presence and empowering us with his spirit. Our only job is to say yes to his mission and to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So let's review. Can we just briefly, and I'll let you go. Three mindsets that are characteristic of a sent person, of a sent people. Intimacy before ministry. Pursue process, not product. And rely on withness to witness. Those are the mindsets that it takes to live in a culture of, of just being sent. Because that's the assumed posture. You are going somewhere. So go in worship of the king. Go with the process of making disciples and go resting in his presence that all along the journey of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, God is with you. This is how we live as sent people. As we pray this morning, I'm gonna ask you to reaffirm this posture in your own life. So would you pray with me for a few moments? This will be how we close this morning. There's no closing song. We have one announcement from Jake and Stan in a moment, but as far as ending our service, we're just minutes away. And I just wanna end with an opportunity for you to reaffirm this is your posture. And in all frankness, I, I think you know my heart. It is in light of some minor tweaks and adjustments coming up next year. You're right. But I think hearing your laughter and seeing your smiles, I think I can trust you that those are small things in, in reality. I'm asking you to reaffirm and reconfirm your posture really to the larger mission that making disciples of all nations who then make disciples of all nations, who then make disciples of all nations is the heartbeat of God. His passion is for all peoples. So the changes for next year are small, but maybe in your heart, God's actually calling upon you for some larger changes. Maybe there's teens here who know that you need to change where you're going to college because missions is really your future. Maybe there's businessmen here who have been blessed by God. And you need to up your generosity, businesswomen. Regular churchgoers who are like, you know what? Yeah, I've got some year-end giving to do. Because the mission's clearly a priority here. And I want my giving to be more than just spent. I want it to be invested. So I, I suspect there's probably deeper things going on in all of your hearts than just a few things I mentioned. 
So I'm asking, will you reconfirm, will you reaffirm your posture of living as a sent one for the mission of God? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.